Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first real episode of Perfect Shadows. And with this being the first episode, I figured who could be a better choice than the one, the only. Drumroll, please. Sargon the Great. With a strong name like that, you know this guy's going to get into some crazy shit. Now, Sargon of Akkad, or as we just introduced him, Sargon the Great, would live up to his epithet by becoming the first emperor in history. As with many figures from the time period, the historical record is spotty at best, particularly when it comes to the origins of Sargon. We're pretty sure that he reigned for about 56 years. We think he died around 2279 BCE, so we can guess that he was born approximately around 2000 BCE. We don't even know his real name. Sargon is the Semitic throne name he chose for himself. With what little we know about Sargon, we know even less about his parentage. Obscure legends are essentially all we have to go on. But what makes this legend so interesting is that it tells a tale most of us have heard at least once or twice in our lives. These legends claim that Sargon was the illegitimate son of a priestess and a mountain man. As the priestess had kept the pregnancy a secret, she had to dispose of the baby at birth. She chose to place it in a basket and send it floating down river. A commoner found the basket and raised the boy to be a gardener. This boy would eventually come into the service of the king before becoming king himself, as voiced by Val Kilmer 4,000 years later in the animated movie The Prince of Egypt. No, wait, maybe I'm getting this confused with someone else. That's right, the story of Moses draws heavily on the origin story of Sargon, so much so that you'd be hard-pressed to find another example that could have been used by the Hebrew scribes 1,500 years later when they wrote it down. Susan Tower Hillis says, quote, These legends present a pattern very much like traditional narratives from other cultures, in which the protagonist is challenged, often being exiled or otherwise excluded from the center of rule or action, and encountering situations he or she must overcome to return and assume leadership, end quote. This motif pops up all throughout history, from Perseus in ancient Greek mythology to the more recent Jon Snow in Game of Thrones or Uhtred of Bevanbur in the Saxon stories. Fast forward a few years and Sargon, now a young man, is working as a cupbearer, which is kind of like a valet, for King Ur-Zababa, the ruler of the Sumerian city-state of Kish. The names are going to get a bit harder going forward, so excuse me if I mispronounce something. Although I gotta say, Ur-Zababa is pretty fun to say. Now Sargon was said to be a favorite of the goddess Ishtar, and it is said she appeared to him in a dream, where she covered Sargon in blood like a Mesopotamian version of Kerry. Sargon, in a moment of innocent naivete, mentions his dream to the king, who immediately takes it as an ill omen that Sargon would end up killing him. King Urzababa sets up a trap with the chief smith, wherein he would order Sargon to drop off some drinking vessels to be melted down, then toss Sargon in as well. Luckily, Ishtar appears to Sargon and prevents him from entering. Sargon presents himself to the king, who is dumbfounded to not only learn that his valet is still alive, but that he enjoys the protection of Ishtar herself. Sometime later, a rival Sumerian king named Lugalzagezi is making a name for himself by conquering and uniting different kingdoms throughout Mesopotamia. When he turns his eye toward Kish, Urzababa sends Sargon as his peace envoy. Still not over Sargon's dream, Urzababa goes double or nothing and in his message begs Lugalzagezi to kill Sargon on the spot. Lugalzagezi figured this guy must be worth something if Urzababa is so insistent on having him killed, so he refuses and instead flips Sargon to his side easily taking the city-state of Kish. The record is again spotty during this period. Exactly how and why Sargon breaks from Lugalzagezi and actually gains power is unknown. Some sources point to a love affair with Lugalzagezi's wife, 
or Sargon being sent on a mission, which he then takes as his opportunity to begin his own conquest. Either way, that saucy little pirate Sargon broke away and began to focus his attention on defeating his former ally. Seizing Lugal Zagezi's capital city of Uruk and tearing down its walls, Sargon met the king in battle and defeated him. Sargon threw Lugal Zagezi in chains, tied a rope to his neck, and led him all the way to the city of Nippur, forcing him to march in disgrace to the temple of his protector god, Enlil, thus cementing the victory of both Sargon and his own protector god, Ishtar. Sarah Millville explains the significance of this religious humiliation, writing, quote, In ideological terms, war became a contest between kings that the gods decided, whereby the victorious ruler proved his legitimacy and the loser revealed his inadequacy. Success on the battlefield could transform a rebel and a usurper into a legitimate king, while defeat signaled the gods' disapproval. So life's going pretty good for Sargon right now. He's beat a powerful foe, he's been made king, and now he gets to marry Tashlultum, who bore him five children. Or so we think. We know next to nothing about her, so we just have to take the leap and assume the children were all hers. Now after his triumph over Lugal Zagezi and the city-state of Uruk, Sargon decided to kick back on the banks of the Euphrates and take a well-deserved vacation. And by vacation, I mean he set his sights on conquering the rest of the region, engaging in almost constant warfare that would see him vanquishing and acquiring city-states in the Persian Gulf, the Indus River Valley, Syria, Assyria, and in some sources, as far north as Cyprus or even Anatolia. According to his own inscriptions, Sargon would later boast that he had been victorious in over 34 military campaigns throughout his life and that he had washed his sword in the sea. It's a weird flex, but okay. Looking into this a bit more, Sarah Melville explains that washing their weapons in the sea and purification rites symbolized that they had reached the edge of the civilized world. So it's actually a pretty legit flex. His exploits reached as far as the Hittites in modern-day Turkey and Akhenaten's kingdom in Egypt, someone I'm excited to cover in a future episode. This isn't to say that he was welcomed everywhere as a liberator. Numerous rebellions had to be quashed as they sprang up throughout his continually expanding empire. He built his capital city of Akkad on the banks of the Euphrates River. Although its actual location has been lost to the sands of time, experts believe it was in Iraq, near modern-day Baghdad or Samarra. Now, from how I understand it, this building of the capital city was actually rather unique because at the time, kings would conquer city-states, then take the wealth and resources back to their capital which sounds a bit more like a raid than anything else. Building the capital, however, was more of a way for Sargon to announce that he wasn't doing this for any one city-state. He was building this for himself. Now, Sargon's favorite method of governance was installing loyal Akkadian governors in the 65 or so cities he conquered, whose first order of business was to tear down the city walls. The emphasis on Akkadian governors, rather than installing puppets from the local populace, was significant for two reasons. One, it allowed for a sort of centralization of power under Sargon's hold. This essentially created the first large-scale bureaucracy working in conjunction with the government administration apparatus, a system which would be emulated by future rulers for thousands of years. Along with the governors, Akkadian soldiers were garrisoned there for support. Sargon would boast that he had 5,400 soldiers who, quote, ate bread daily before him, quote. Such a large professional standing army was another first for world history, and the ability to keep them fed speaks volumes to the wealth accumulated by Sargon. I mean, just picture this. Sargon's army is a bit larger than your standard Roman legion, and he's got them all well-fed and ready to rock over two millennia before the Romans even come onto the scene. I don't know, logistically, it just sounds pretty awe-inspiring. 
Just as important as the amount of soldiers he has available, the fact that he's got garrisons in every city-state fostered the spread and adoption of Akkadian as the de facto lingua franca of the area. For those of you who've played Metal Gear Solid V, you should already recognize the overwhelming impact that the spread of a language can have on the cultural psyche of a region. I mean, that's Skullface's whole shtick. With the new official language in place, Sargon set to remake the kingdom in his vision. He appointed his daughter to the post of high priestess, allowing him to control the religious aspects of daily life. He funded construction projects across the empire, including the rebuilding of Babylon, enacted a fair tax system on all citizens, standardized the alphabet, weights, units of measure, and calendars. It's also during this time that we see what might be the world's first postal service. Letters, so to speak, were in the form of clay tablets with messages written on them. During Sargon's reign, we also see the first envelopes, which were actually thin layers of clay that would wrap around the inscribed tablets and serve to both hide and protect the contents. So when you were receiving a letter, you'd get your clay tablet, it'd be completely blank, you'd have to crack it open, and there would be your message. That's how you open your envelope. As stability spread over the lands, trade began to flourish, with sources claiming that some trade ships traveled as far as India with wool and oil, returning with pearls, ivory, and other valuables. The taxes he received from these merchants went toward paying his large army and as a funding for the arts. A picture is worth a thousand words, and as literacy wasn't exactly a thing among the populace, it was definitely an easy way to let people everywhere know how much of a badass you were. After 56 years on the throne, Sargon of Akkad died of old age in 2279 BCE. His status, already colossal in life, grew to mythical proportions in death. Future Assyrian and Babylonian rulers would swear a descendancy from Sargon as a claim to legitimacy. Legends of his exploits were still being written millennia later. He was as much a part of the consciousness of the land and the people of Mesopotamia as the Tigris and Euphrates rivers which made life possible in the first place. Although there would be future kings like Hammurabi who would be able to conquer and create empires on a similar scale, it wasn't until Alexander the Great came to power that it seemed there was finally a warrior king who could live up to the might of Sargon of Akkad, who could wield the immense powers of a large-scale empire, and who could be the true heir to Sargon the Great. So that's our first episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Next week, we're going to stay in the same area, but jump ahead a bit in time and cover Hammurabi of Babylon. As always, please check out our Instagram page at Perfect Shadows Podcast for some alternate cover art or our website at www.perfectshadowspodcast.com for the sources used in this episode. I'll see you guys next week.